Good morning, church. I hope you're doing well. If you'd take a Bible and open it up uh, to the book of Exodus. We are in Exodus chapter 6 today. We'll be looking at chapter 6 to 8, but I want to read from Exodus chapter 6, beginning at verse 2. So while you're turning there, I just want to let you know that next week we're going to take a one-week break from the book of Exodus to focus in on Romans 14, togetherness amidst COVID-19. The hope there is that we'll be able to talk through a little bit of how the church will respond as the governor has laid out some different phases uh, for potential gathering. And with the varied convictions and opinions, we just want to make sure that we get the privilege to look at God's word together and prize unity and love in the midst of what will be inevitable disagreements and differing opinions. So I look forward to that, Romans chapter 14 next week. But for today, we're in Exodus chapter 6. We'll be looking at 6 to 8, but we're in Exodus chapter 6. I'll begin reading uh, the Bible in verse 2, and then we'll skip down to verse 6, and I'll read a few more verses. So Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, goes like this. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you for, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the Lord, worthy of all our affection and all our praise, all our allegiance. And right now you are the one that wants to hear our prayers and invites us into an intimate, personal relationship. You are not a subject to be known. You're a person to be loved. And I pray, O oh God, that you would not just show us with our intellect your glory, but that you would show it in experience. And that, Father, our hearts would grow and stretch and broaden in our love for you. And that we would see it as our singular aim to make you known to know you above everything else. So, Father, move in our midst, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Focus is a pretty important thing. Top CEOs, it's in all their stories. Top sports figures, it's in all their stories. Top musicians, top artists. There are two things that I think kind of reverberate through all of their journeys of what it looks like to have personal growth, and professional career type growth. And they would be these two indispensable aspects. One, know what you are passionate about and focus on that thing. Go after it. But two, do the hard work of saying no to bad things. And even more than that, say no to some good things that might distract you from that singular focus and that singular passion. Every, whenever I try to write a sermon, the hardest work of writing a sermon is taking the good stuff and chopping it away so that the best stuff can rise to the top. That's what's necessary in good writing or good speaking. I was watching a documentary on Michael Jordan, and because there's very little going on in the sports world, it's become pretty popular. 
out there, but he recalls his rookie years with his rookie year with the Chicago Bulls. And as he is recalling it, he recalled that there were a, a franchise that was terrible in the sense of not having a winning attitude. And there was just this sense of kind of getting a paycheck and kind of going through the motions. And with this kind of losing attitude, he recalls a road trip his rookie year when he walked into a hotel room and he began to see that over in this corner, there were some of his teammates that were doing drugs, some that were drinking heavily, others that were involved in other forms of heavy partying. And he had a decision to make at that moment. And he said he just turned around and he walked right out. And it was because there was this conviction in his heart that that would distract him from his singular focus. He wanted to become a winner. And he knew that in order to become a winning team, to be the best he could be, to go to the playoffs and even win a championship, he had to say no to bad things because the prize was worth it. Also, he had to say no to some good things. I'm imagining he had to say no to eating certain foods that he would want to eat or doing some things that he would rather do rather than working out or putting all that time in, in the gym. But he did that because he knew he had to work on his craft. It was a mentality. Give it all for the goal. Say no to the bad things. Even say no to some good things for a singular passion and a singular focus. Now, I don't think that the goal of life is winning in basketball. But I do think that we can learn from this passionate drive, this singular focus that reveals a life or a way of living sold out to one thing. And God is pressing on our hearts that there is a person, a prize to be treasured, so much greater than basketball, so much better than being on the billionaire's list. It is the central chief highest ambition of living for, promoting the name of Jesus, celebrating the grace of Jesus, and enjoying the love of Jesus. It is knowing Jesus. That is the singular aim of the Christian. And this aim is what we will seek to look at this week. The aim of this week is still asking our two questions. That is, is God at work and how will we respond? And throughout the Exodus narrative, God tells us his aim may be best summarized in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, when he says, Moses say to the people of Israel, the Lord, and if you were with me right now, I would love to hear your voices say, the Lord. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name, he says, forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He is saying that the people of God make it their primary aim to know the name of God and to remember it throughout all generations. So this week when we ask the question, we ask the question, is God at work? In this text, how is he at work and is he at work in our lives? The question or the answer is yes, God is working for the glory of his name. And what is our response? Therefore, to know him, to know his name and to make him known. So that's the title. God works for the glory of his name. Our response is to know the Lord. Now, when you say the name of God, it's not like you need to know a first and a last name. It's not just a title. It is knowing his character. It is knowing his essence, his attributes. It's what makes him 
stand out above everyone else? What makes him him? And so, yes, this is what he is asking us to know. We might say, that person is making a name for themselves. It means they are acting in such a way that it makes them stand out, makes others take notice. And God is acting among the Egyptians here in the book of Exodus in such a way that people will stop and take notice that he is a God like no other God. He is the only true God. No other rival exceeds him. And therefore, we live for his glory. This is why you see in Exodus chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, God says to Moses, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You see this over and over. I am the Lord. He says it at least seven times in these three chapters. I am the Lord. And he uses his name, the Lord, so many other times throughout this chapter just to highlight that he is the one that is worthy of our allegiance. He is the Lord, and that is his name that we must know. This is why God addresses Pharaoh in chapter 9, explaining why these plagues are coming upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And he says to Pharaoh this, he says, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The purpose of these plagues is so that God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And you see it in their victory song when God exoduses his people out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. They sing a song in Exodus 15, and here's what they sing. The Lord is the man of war. The Lord is his name. Who is the like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So today and during COVID-19, the aim in some sense isn't a mystery at all, and it never has been. Why this season? So that God's people would know the Lord. They would know him as the only true God. They would know his name as the covenant-keeping God and would trust him in the face of adversity. Trust him as the faithful God of the Exodus, but also as the glorious God of Calvary, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, that we would know that Lord. So now we're going to look at a little bit more of the story of Exodus. We're carrying through in this journey, and as we look, we're going to look and see how God is working for the glory of his name, and we will seek to respond by knowing him. This is the question we'll be asking the rest of the time. How is God working for the glory of his name. And the first way we see it is by making and keeping promises to his people. How is God making, how is God working for the glory of his name? Answer number one, by making and keeping promises to his people. The passage that I read at the beginning from Exodus chapter six is chalked full of promises. And Exodus 6 is inserted in between the two uh, first two approaches of Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron approach him in Exodus chapter 5, and Pharaoh has a hard heart and makes things harder on the people of Israel, and they begin to despair, and so do Moses and Aaron. And then you have all these promises put in there in Exodus chapter 6, and it's these promises that help them carry through this entire ordeal, but especially in the midst of their deep sadness when things seem to get worse and not better. 
The people of God live upon the promises of God. God keeps his word. And that's why in Exodus chapter 6, it's the promises. I have heard their groaning. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. It's those promises that carry Moses and his people through. And it's those promises that were built upon other promises in Genesis chapter 15. If you remember, Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, he says this, your offspring, this is, these are the promises made to Abraham about this very moment. He says to Abraham, your offspring will be sojourners in a land not their own. He gives the promise that they will be found in affliction for 400 years and that God will judge the nation who is afflicting them and afterward, they will come out or they will be exodused out of that land and they will be taken to a land that will be their own. It will be a land that is called a promised land. You see, everything driving the people of Israel, everything driving Moses is built upon the promises of God. God's name is at stake as he makes these promises, he is putting himself on the hook because if he doesn't come through, he is not the Lord. He is not trustworthy. He cannot be followed. The very first verse in TCC's history that we ever memorized as a church was Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, which says, every word of God proves true and he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. This is what is at stake. God is on the hook when he makes these promises. And God doesn't fail. He comes through. We fall short all the time. We have to apologize for forgetting or breaking our word. We are sinful humans needing forgiveness and seeking to earn back individuals' trust. But God does not sin. He does not fall short. His name hinges on always keeping his word. And here we see our covenant-keeping God. And throughout this entire ordeal throughout the entire narrative and story God is keeping his promises remember after Moses's first 40 years in Egypt he spends the next 40 years in a life of exile he's a sojourner in a land that is completely different than where he first began from fast famous Egyptian royalty to now slow obscure shepherd's life in the midst of Midian Moses is there for 40 years he gets married, he has children, and now he lives in Midian, which is near Mount Sinai. But it's in that obscurity that God does a mighty preparing work to get him ready to be used to deliver the people out of the hands of the Egyptians, or at least to be the tool that God uses to deliver the people out of, his, out of the Egyptians' hands. So what we see in Exodus chapter 3 is that God comes to Moses and Moses is terrified in those moments. Not just the fact that God shows up in a burning bush, but that God would ask him to lead the people out of, the promise, out of Egypt to the promised land. Moses gives several excuses, but God obliterates each and every one of them, not by saying, oh, Moses, you're strong enough, but by saying, oh, Moses, I am strong enough. These are the promises that carried Moses and the people through. 
And there are promises for you in my life. The promises that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And how will he complete it? 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us by changing us from one degree of glory to another as we behold his glorious face. And he will work all things according to the counsel of his will. He will work all things for our good, which means he'll be making us more and more like Jesus with everything that we encounter. And he promises that we can go and make disciples of all peoples because he will go with us. These are the promises that he gives to us. And so just like Moses, who spent 40 years in preparation for this moment, do not look back at our past or look at your present and feel as if it is a wasted time. God is preparing you because God will use you. These are the promises that God has for all of us. He will use all of our struggles for the glory of his name, that we might proclaim him as long as we have breath. I was reading in a devotion book by Peter Cesaro, and he says, God never loses any of our past for his future. When we surrender ourselves to him, he is the Lord. Every mistake, sin, detour, setback, or disappointment we take in the journey of life is taken by God and becomes his gift for a future blessing when we surrender ourselves to him. And then there was a, a question for reflection, and I lay it out here to you. The question is this, what space in the world is waiting to be filled by you and for which your past has prepared you for? Your past has prepared you to be used by God. And I pray like Moses, you see your past not simply as pain to be avoided, but trusting the promises of God, you see it as preparation for this moment right now. See it as God preparing you to be used for the glory of his name. Moses had a choice. Will I trust God or will I trust myself? Will I follow God or will I follow myself? And what we see in Exodus chapter 4 verse 20 is Moses ventured out to Egypt with his wife and his sons, his staff in hand, and Aaron joins him and they go to Pharaoh. And so how is God working for the glory of his name? He is making and keeping his glorious promises. But there's a second way. The second way he is working for the glory of his name is by showing that nothing can thwart his purposes. The next main part of the story that we run into is the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron arrive in front of Pharaoh, telling him to let the Lord's people go. And Pharaoh says, as we've already mentioned in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, he says this, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Did you hear that? Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Pharaoh doesn't know the Lord's name. And because of that, he chooses to make it harder on the people of Israel. And as stated at the beginning, this is the crisis for every life. And this is the crisis before Pharaoh. Do you know the Lord and will you listen to his voice? Right now, Pharaoh is saying no. And Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel are in despair because they had their hopes up and they were dashed. But God allows Pharaoh's obstinance to run out a little 
to show how worthy he is of God's judgment. But now God is going to show that no matter how strong Pharaoh thinks he is, our God is stronger because his purposes cannot be thwarted. Now we are rushed into Exodus chapter 7 where we see God summarizing what is about to happen. And he is explaining that nothing, absolutely nothing, not even powerful Pharaoh or his people will thwart God's plans. Listen to Exodus chapter 7, verses 2 to 5. He says to Moses, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. There it is. I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And this is, an exodus, this is an echo of Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, that God will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. And this emphasizes one of the most difficult parts of this story. And that is, how are we to understand the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Is it Pharaoh doing it or is it God doing it? If it's Pharaoh doing it, then it seems that Pharaoh would be able to thwart God's plans. If it's God's, God doing it, then it seems like Pharaoh can't be responsible for his actions. And therefore, a major part of God's glory and character being displayed in Pharaoh is found in this question. Can Pharaoh thwart God's plans? God's name is at stake if evil can thwart his purposes. So how should we understand this? Well, these first two statements that I've already given you, Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, and Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, both could be viewed as summary statements, which say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I call them summary statements because it's not referring to any specific encounter with Pharaoh, but just the encounters with Pharaoh in general. So these summary statements summarize it all by God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, from there, we dive into the individual encounters. Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, you see that Pharaoh's heart grew hard, or you might see the translation, it was hardened. You see that in Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, verse 14, verse 22, chapter 8, 19, and chapter 9, verse 7. All of these say Pharaoh's heart was hardened, or Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And it does not tell us who's responsible or who is doing the harden, hardening. Is that God or is that Pharaoh? We're not really told. We're just told that it grew hard. And then we were told in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15 and verse 32, that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. These examples all take place within the first five plagues that God pours out upon the people of Egypt. So out of ten plagues, five plagues in, all of it is just that Pharaoh has either hardened his heart or that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And that's what we read. Then we also see God giving Pharaoh a chance, chance after chance after chance to turn and repent and to walk in humility under the mighty hand of God. But Pharaoh does not 
And after plague five, you begin to read that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So you could take away from this that God's first two statements, summary statements, and then Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and God responds by hardening Pharaoh's heart as Pharaoh's heart gets to a point of kind of no return. You could draw this conclusion because God explicitly hardening Pharaoh's heart does not happen until Exodus chapter 9, verse 12. As the Bible Project says, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is God bending Pharaoh's evil towards God's own purposes. And this is a probable way to read this. However, we must be careful. We must be careful not to read this with just our, our Western lenses that read everything so linearly, because that is not as pervasive in the Hebrew mindset. Here's what I mean. God has no problem saying that he hardens Pharaoh's heart and is in complete control, and yet that does not undo Pharaoh's responsibility. The responsibility of Pharaoh to walk in humility and to choose God over himself. We say no. No, no, no. The Western mind says no. If God hardens Pharaoh's heart, then Pharaoh can't be responsible. If we say Pharaoh is responsible, then God can't be sovereignly, totally in control, hardening Pharaoh's heart. But this type of dichotomy is not how the Bible talks. The example of Proverbs 16, 9, I've used before, but you hear this verse. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Which is it? Is the man planning his way or is the Lord planning his way? Which is it? Did the man plan the way and the Lord and he establishes his own steps? Or is the man like a robot and God is establishing his steps? But that's not how the verse reads. Man establishes his step, or man makes his steps, and he's completely responsible for them. The Lord establishes him, and he is not bound by man. Is man making the steps? Definitely. Is God determining the path? Absolutely. As Tim Keller says, it's not 50-50 or 60-40. It's 100% free and responsible, 100% determined in the sovereignty of God. So did Pharaoh harden his heart? Yes. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. There are mysteries here, but make no mistake. The summary statements are the summary statements for a reason. God is saying this story is meant to shout that our God is in control. And this story is going exactly as God knew it would and exactly as God has purposed it to go. And this is why Paul in Romans chapter 9 uses Pharaoh and these chapters in Exodus as a demonstration of the matchless glory of our God when he says, and God has compassion on whom he has compassion and he will harden whom he hardens. This is a mystery. But what is not a mystery is that God is sovereignly over salvation and evil cannot thwart God's plans. This is part of the glory of God's name. So as we read through the Exodus, God is working for the glory of his name. And he's doing that not only by making and keeping promises, and not only by showing that nothing can thwart his purposes, but finally he's doing that by showing he is greater than everything else we could live for. One of the greatest debates in Marvel Comics world 
is who is the greatest? Is it Captain America? Is it Black Panther? Is it Captain Marvel, Thor, Iron Man? This is a huge debate. Probably not as serious as the things that we're talking about, but it seemed that way to some at different times. The debate will keep raging. Why? Because no one has inexhaustible powers over everything. And no one has kind of this inability to be weak. There's a weakness for all of them. But that is what God is going to show the Egyptians. There is no weakness in God. And there is no rival to the Lord. So now that we understand a little bit better of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, in Exodus chapter 7, we see Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh for the second time and be used as God's instruments to bring what will be the first of 10 plagues upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. Plague number one is this. The water of the Nile is turned into blood. So catch the scene. Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh and they do just what the Lord commands. Aaron, in the presence of Pharaoh, throws down the staff of the Lord and it turns into a snake. Now that would mess with me because I hate snakes. Cannot stand them. But Pharaoh calls his sorcerers and his wise men. They're also summarized by the term, the magicians of Egypt. And they were able to do the same thing, throw their staffs down and make them a snake. This whole devoting themselves to evil, that is a real and scary thing. Darkness is not to be messed with. However, let's be clear. Aaron's snake ate their snake. God wins is the point. Still Pharaoh, he didn't care. In verse 13 of chapter 7 tells us that his heart stayed hard. It was hardened. Now in Exodus chapter 7 verse 17, we hear this. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. There's the name category again. I am the Lord. That's my name. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. This is how you're going to know my name is the water of the Nile River will be turned into blood. And so what happens is the water of the Nile River is turned into blood. And then the magicians of Egypt are able to do the same thing. But doesn't anyone find it odd that they tried to mimic it by repeating the very thing that they hated? Here, I'll show you. I can make it bloody too. Pride is so foolish. It would be like us saying, okay, I can make COVID happen. Oh, well, I can make more COVID happen. Don't you think it would be more impressive to say, oh, I can stop it? But they couldn't stop it. And the water stayed bloody for seven long days. And it says, and Pharaoh's heart still stayed hard. And that's when we come to plague two, frogs. It says, after seven days, then Moses went again and said, if you don't let my people go, I will plague all of your country with frogs. Now we're into chapter 8. And it says that the Nile will swarm with frogs. And you might think, oh, cute, frogs, I love them. Not so much. Because listen to what he says in Exodus chapter 8, verse 3. And they will come into your bedroom and on your bed and into your house and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. 
you imagine opening up your oven and seeing a frog? That's disturbing. But then it gets worse. He says, and they shall come upon you and your family and your workers. It's like they're going to be on you. And Pharaoh refused. He refused to let the people go. And so Aaron stretched out his hand and frogs came up out of the Nile all over the land. And the magicians thought they were great too. And they said, hey, we can make frogs come up too. I'll show you. There's some frogs. Okay, whatever. Make more frogs. That's fine. But they couldn't stop them. Finally, in Exodus chapter 8, verse 8, Pharaoh had had enough. And he said, tell the Lord to make them stop. And I will let the people of Israel go. And so in Exodus chapter 8, verse 10, Moses says this, It will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. <laughs> what does that mean? Only the Lord our God can stop it. And so God did what Moses asked in prayer, and the frogs died, and the land stunk with all the dead frogs. But Pharaoh, when he saw that the frogs had stopped, he hardened his heart and would not listen to the Lord anymore, and he didn't let the people go. And so that's when the third plague came, and it came with no warning, the plague of gnats. And so God told Moses to tell Aaron to stretch out the staff, and he stretches out the staff, and the dust of the earth became gnats. The magicians tried, but they could not do this one. All they could say is found in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen just as God said he would do. And this concludes the first grouping of three. And we know that they're in groups of three because it goes, the first two plagues come with warnings, the third plague does not. And then that pattern repeats for three cycles showing that then the 10th one is the climax of all of the plagues. But here's the question. What's significant about the plagues? Because today we're just going to get through the third plague. In two weeks, we'll deal with plagues four through nine. But what is significant about these plagues? What's significant is that in Egyptian culture, these areas... These very areas that God is attacking, the water, frogs, gnats, etc., they were supposed to be areas protected by the false gods of Egypt. So when God sends plagues upon these very areas, he is explicitly saying, there is no one like the Lord God of Israel. It's like the ultimate flex. He's saying, I am the Lord. I am greater than the evil magical powers. I am greater than governments. I am greater than every other cheap imitation God that's out there. And we need to hear, I am greater than the hatred that killed Ahmad Aubrey. I am greater than Planned Parenthood. I am greater than the traffickers. I am greater than COVID. This is what he is saying. I am greater. In these plagues, he is working for the glory of his name by showing he is greater than everything else that people could live for. And when he is asking them, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, to let the people of Israel go, God is functionally saying, I am the true God. You, Egypt, you need to let your gods go. You need to let your gods go too. And I wonder, I wonder if this is 
not a part of this coronavirus season. Maybe there's a specific targeting on the gods that we are most attached to, the God of health, the God of wealth, the God of safety, and the significance that we find in our jobs. And with one swoop, there's a pandemic. Pandemic that almost overnight threatens all of our gods and shows them to be unable to deliver us, unable to hold up our desires and our longings and our significance. So whether we might be his children and secure in his love, or whether some of you listening are hardening your heart like Pharaoh, the message is laser sharp. Let go of your gods and cling to the one true God. Have no other gods before Jesus. We all need this reset. We all need this grounding. We exist and we are to live for the glory of his name and to spend our lives for the purpose of knowing him and making him known. This is the glory of Jesus. He came, according to John 17, among other places, for the singular aim of glorifying his Father. He never attached himself to other idols. He perfectly lived for the glory of his Father. He was obedient to the point of death, death in our place, so that when we let go of our false gods, the gods of money and health, as our ultimate means of happiness or security, we will not fall to the ground naked and bleeding. Instead, we will fall into the loving arms of Jesus, who was forsaken so that we would never be. I was listening to a pastor who gave this illustration. He said, wouldn't it be cruel if I told my daughter to climb up to the top of the steps and to jump to me and that I would catch her only to watch her climb up to the top of the steps and when she jumped, I just moved out of the way. Wouldn't that be cruel? It'd be horrible. Trust would be broken. But we have a God who will not move. We have a God who will also catch us. He will not drop us. And so the invitation as we read through the book of Exodus is let go of your gods. Let go of all substitutes and leap into the secure arms of Jesus. And that leads to the response. Because God is working for the glory of his name, his people are to see his worthiness. And we are to make it our primary focus, our central driving passion to know the Lord and to make him known. You see it throughout the passage. God is saying, I am the Lord. That is my name. I am the one who keeps promises. I am the one whose plans can't be thwarted by evil. I am the one who is greater than all rivals. My name is the Lord. There is no other and this must be a part of every Christian's vocabulary that I do what I do for the sake of the glory of God's name. I live for his fame to make him famous. And that makes sense of Jesus's life and therefore of ours. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, he begins by saying, Father, hallowed be your name. Recently, I've been beginning my times with the Lord, both in the morning and in the afternoon, 
in silence. And this is my first prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. May you be my singular focus, my sole purpose. May you be the greatest pursuit of my life. And this is what Jesus is saying characterizes our prayers. May your name be set apart in my life. It makes sense why when Jesus is going to the cross, he says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. It makes sense why Jesus in the garden says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. It makes sense why God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will not give to another. My praise I will not give to carved idols. It makes sense why Isaiah 26, 8 says, for your name and your renown are the desire of my soul. This is how the Christian talks. For through you and to you and for you are all things. To you be the glory. Romans chapter 11. This is how the Christian thinks and operates. And if that makes you bristle, then you probably have too much of you in your spiritual bones. This is not advanced Christianity. This is the beginning of a lifelong journey of, oh God, I just want to please you. I want to live for you. I want you. I want to live for you. I want your name to be known. So many of us might be tempted to think significance is in being remembered, but I just pray I pray that as we see God is at work for the glory of his name, that our response would be a sense of freedom, that we would live our life not so that we would be remembered, but so that he would be remembered. We would live our lives to make an impact on people that they might too love the glory of God. Friends, he is at work. He is at work. For the glory of his name, that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. May God give us grace that we might join him in that mission to know him and to make him known. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please come in power. Move in our midst. May we think and reflect on where our lives might be off of true north pursuing other gods, gripping on other things that only fall through like sand through the fingers. God, help us to go after you as our soul-driving passion, as a central driving force of our lives and how we process our careers and our past and our present and our future and our decision-making and all that we do. May it be for the glory of your name. Father, please, I pray. May we see that you not just make promises, but you keep promises and that evil cannot thwart your purposes. God, please, we pray. Help us to see that you are greater than all other rivals and may we live for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Blessings.